Hello and welcome to Elevate Festival 2017, day five. Uh, this talk is called Making Sense of the Crisis of Civilization. Uh, you can tweet us during the talk at the hashtag E17Crisis. Uh, I'm Dean Puckett and I'm going to be having a conversation with Nafiz Ahmed, uh, reflecting on some of the things that have happened since we made our documentary, The Crisis of Civilization, six years ago, which we actually world premiered here at Elevate Festival in 2011. Almost nothing's happened since then, so maybe we could all just go home right now. Uh, Dr. Nafiz Ahmed is an award-winning investigative journalist, noted international security scholar, best-selling author, and filmmaker. He tracks the war on terror in the context of what he calls the crisis of civilization. So I think we'll just play the first two minutes of the movie, which really outlines the main thesis, uh, and then we will begin the discussion. So if you could play the video. If we look at what's going on in the world today, we see so many different things happening at the same time. And it can be very confusing trying to make sense of the debates around these things. But when you actually look at these things holistically, it starts to make some sense. Unfortunately, what we have at the moment is a lot of people in different fields looking at everything in isolation. So you've got one lot of people looking at climate change, one lot of people looking at energy, a bunch of guys looking at food, some other guys looking at the economy, some other guys looking at terrorism and foreign policy. And what I think is really important to do is to look at these things as part of a global system. And when you do that, you actually come away with a different perspective. My view, having looked at a lot of these trends, is that some of the most worrying predictions are most likely to be true. If you look at these things in their totality, what we're seeing is industrial civilization is unsustainable. And all of these different crises are really just different manifestations of the fact that this civilization in its current form cannot survive the 21st century. Basically, I'm going to try and start to talk to Nafiz about how Brexit fits into the crisis of civilization theory. Uh, obviously, we're two English guys, so maybe we'll, we, can, we can have a chat about that. Is he there? Oh, no. Hello? Hello, Nafiz. I'm here. <laughs> I can see you, you guys can't see me. Where are you? <laughs> I'm at the NSA. You're in my mind. <laughs> You're inside my brain. Ah, there I'm you inside are. inside all your brains. Look at your lovely face. Okay, um, <laughs> the disembodied head of Nafiz Ahmed. <laughs> uh, okay, uh, so yeah, let's, um, let's just great jump straight in. Uh, one of the themes of Elevate this year is We Are Europe. So I'll start by asking you, how does Brexit fit into the concept of a crisis of civilization, and why do we think that it happened? I love your jumper, by the way. Oh, thanks, it's just, pal. It's, it's amazing. You're also sporting <laughs> some nice knitwear. <laughs> this is how me and Dean roll. You know, we just comment <laughs> on each other's sweaters before we get into the really important stuff. Yeah. So, Brexit. Well, I think let's just step back a little bit to try and um, look at the context of what happened with Brexit. And I think when we do that, we begin to see that actually we're dealing with something which is systemic. It's happening globally and we're seeing the results in many different parts of the world. And that's why it's a systemic problem. It's not just a local issue. It's not just an European issue. And I think the first thing is a couple of uh, conceptual tools that I've kind of used to kind of situate things like Brexit, things like Trump, in, in, in that kind of, in, in that systemic context. And one of those tools is to, to do with really the way in which uh, social groups can basically otherize each other. Um, and what, when we look at uh, some of the tools that we get from genocide theory and, and, and the history of, of um, kind of like, kind of violent radicalization of various groups, 
what one of the things that we see happens when we see a really big shift in the, a kind of shift, a big change in the way people think about certain type, certain other groups is the context of crisis. So we know that there has been this, there is a heightening perception of a crisis, there's a heightening perception and a feeling that something is wrong. Um, the problem is, is that there isn't very much of an understanding of why that's happening. So if we look at the situation that we're in today, many of the things that I've discussed in the film, in, 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 in my books and in various articles that I've been writing is, is, is the idea that all of these challenges that we face are fundamentally interconnected. Things like the slow growth economy that we've entered into cannot be abstracted away from the deeper environmental, uh, environmental crisis that we're facing, its relationship to energy and so on and so forth. And what we've seen is since that, since the kind of like, since we entered the, two, the, era, the 2000 era, what's happened is that we're starting to see, as many scientists have predicted, many studies predicted uh, some time ago, we're starting to see the impacts of the kind of limits to growth reality in many different ways. Now, one of the things that is happening is in the background, the, the, the kind of one of the big drivers that I've been writing about recently of the slow growth economy and this kind of plateauing in growth. And, you know, we kind of like in this weird, tepid recovery. And that's fundamentally what's really kind of affecting people here, you know, here and now every day, you know, your average worker, your average person on the street, that's what's, what, what we're feeling. But what's driving that is this, is this environmental energy crisis, where when we look at the value of the energy that we're able to extract from our fossil fuel resource base, what we're seeing is that over the last century, there's been a, a quite dramatic decline in that net value of energy that we're able to actually take out. And I've written a couple of articles on this. If you want to check out the kind of empirical data and the scientific studies that I'm referring to, but this all comes down to this concept called energy return on investment, which basically measures the amount of energy that you put in and uh, in order to extract a certain amount of energy from a, from a particular resource. And when we're applying that measure to the global fossil fuel resource base, what we've seen is that since around the 1920s, 1930s, when we had the kind of heyday of industrial civilization at its peak, when we were really kind of hitting it out there and we were really seeing an exponential acceleration of growth, the value, the net value of energy that we were extracting was about a hundred or so from oil. By the time we get to the seventies, the net value has gone down dramatically to about 30. And it's at this, it's at this point where a number of dissident economists have been pointing out that we seem to be entering this kind of this this tendency of this long-term decline in economic growth, which neoliberal neo economists have not really been acknowledging. And then what we see is from the 1970s onwards, there is this shift in the economy towards financialization and outsourcing of manufacturing and all sorts of ingenious instruments to keep the, the growth machine going. But the actual underlying net a value of energy we're taking out is, is keeps declining. So now if we go to the United States, where we've got this amazing shale gas revolution that the industry tells us is so amazing, the net value of energy that we're actually extracting from oil is, has gone down further to about 10 or 11. And it's going to keep going down. So this is the underlying kind of geophysical reality that we're dealing with is that the model of economic growth that we've developed, this model of endless growth, is beginning to run out of steam in terms of our relationship with the natural environment. And obviously, as the net value of energy is actually declining, imagine with the, we, we know the way capitalism works, or specifically the neoliberal form of capitalism that we see today, which, is, which needs to have growth just to keep going. It's, it's, it's almost like a rational imperative. If you don't keep growing, you get kicked out of the system, you die. So you have to keep doing it. It has this kind of parasitical energy. So we've just had to keep accelerating and finding new ways to grow. So we've expanded fossil fuel production. We're going into places 
you know, which are really difficult to get to. We're now looking at let's try and get into the Arctic. Let's let's really scrape the bottom of the barrel. Let's use all the technological techniques that we can. And in the process, obviously, we're destroying and degrading our environment more. We're having these uncontrolled energy releases into the atmosphere, which is driving climate change, which is also increasing costs on our economies in different ways that are difficult to detect. But scientists and economists are increasingly finding ways to understand how this is happening. So we have all these accelerating crises. But what, what, what you have a group of people who are kind of have a certain vested interest in, in this system as it currently is structured. And they don't want the public to understand that the system isn't working, that the system isn't, isn't quite right, that there are deep-seated structural issues that need to change because they have these vested interests. So you see what's, in, in, and in a way, what I, what I think what is particularly worrying about the moment we find ourselves in is that those particular groups are becoming radicalized. We look at some of the some of the far right groups that are that were advocating Brexit, and we see that these are these are these are groups that hold actually um, extremist views. I mean, we, and, and by, by extremist views, I'm talking about uh, you know neo-Nazi sympathies. You know, they masquerade as nationalist patriotic groups, but actually a lot of these parties have got historical linkages to um, neo-Nazi groups and actually very actually active Nazi groups that had links to the Second World War and had links to the Nazi party in Germany in the Second World War. And this actually is some, this is a part of another investigation I did called Return of the Reich, which you can find in Google. So what, that's what we're seeing is that in a way, the problem we're facing is that the groups who are kind of calling for Brexit, on the one hand, they don't understand the crisis. They don't have a systemic holistic approach. They don't know what's going on. All they see is that their finance, their finances, you know, their, their banks, their, their kind of position in power, their fossil fuel industries are being challenged. And they're looking at the people challenging it and they're looking at um, trying to find a scapegoat, trying to find an explanation. And all they can see is, well, there's too many people. There's, there's too many people it's, and it's, it's, it's the liberals, it's the progressive, it's, it's the European states. And of course there are, fundamental problems with the European Union, fundamental deep-seated structural problems. But my point is not really to interrogate and come to a right or wrong issue on where we stand on Brexit or no Brexit, but simply to understand how we got to the point where Brexit became a reality, where we saw this big, this kind of polarization, where, where a very powerful group of people are simply saying, well, it's actually because there's too many people in Europe, there's too many open borders, and we need to kind of like just go for fortress Europe or fortress my nation in Europe. And that's the answer. But they don't really see that that's not gonna solve the problem. That the, the fundamental biophysical drivers of the problem, the earth system drivers are still there because the system hasn't changed. And there seems to be some clear uh, parallels between what happened with Brexit and what's happened with the election of Donald Trump and I would ask you if we, you know, when you see things like the Muslim ban and Brexit and things like that, should we be worried about the possible rise of fascism? Uh, or are people on the left being kind of alarmist when we talk about that? In my view, I believe that based on, based on my own work, trying to understand the origins of these political parties in Europe, the way in which they've been interconnected and, and trying to um, form alliances tactically over, over the last, uh, say, decade or so. And I based this very much on, the, on the, the series of articles that I wrote under the tag Return of the Reich, which you can check out to see substantiation. I really do believe that there has been a concerted effort by neo-Nazi groups to basically remobilize. And I've actually coined a term for this. I called it reconstructed Nazism. Because one of the interesting features of these groups is that they deny their Nazi heritage. And I'm not um, using the term Nazism here in a kind of loose, pejorative way. I'm actually using it in a very specific way to describe political parties and groups who at their core, I think, actually hold full-blown Nazi ideology. I mean, these people are anti-Semites. 
there's not they're not just anti-muslim and anti-immigrant they're anti-semites um they have very very um deep-rooted sympathies with with the nazi movement and we see some of this with the relations for example with the austrian fpo their relations relationships with other parties that masquerade as being pro-israel for example and pro they try to dress themselves up as pro-jewish and we're looking at parties in the netherlands for example like gert wilder's party or um marine le pen's party in france and we see that there is this tactical move to say that well actually we're all about being scared of islam i mean we're all about being scared of, of of the muslim threat and the danger of too many foreigners and too many immigrants but we're we're very happy with the jewish people and, and we love israel so there is this very interesting dialectic there between if you look at the way in which these groups have evolved and the Austrian FPO is a really interesting one and a very stark example of that, because when we probe the history of the Austrian FPO, we see their direct historical heritage with a uh, historical Nazi movement in Austria. And we also see how the, the party was rehabilitated, uh, a couple, uh, I think about two decades ago, about a decade ago. Um, and they did that with the assistance of neo-Nazi fraternities, which originated during the Second World War. And yet when you look at the public rhetoric, which they mobilize, they claim that they are very friendly with the Jewish people, that they are against anti-Semitism. And, um, you know, the head of the party has had several visits to Israel, and he makes a point about this. Um, despite that, the Israel Foreign Ministry privately recognizes that the FPO is actually um, a, a, a neo-Nazi party. So there, is these, there are these weird kind of dialectics going on. So I do think that there is a, a, a very real resurgence of, of neo-Nazism. Um, and it's not, it's not what we think it is. This, is. this is a very deliberate effort by groups which have Nazi sympathies to try to, they realize that the public doesn't like Nazism. They realize that many, your average person, whatever they might think about immigrants or Muslims or even Jews, they don't like Nazism. We defeated Nazism. Europe, you know, worked together to, to, to destroy Nazism. So they realize it's, it's that if they come out in that way, there will be a very harsh public reaction. So there is this very tactical effort to rebrand themselves, to reorient themselves in order to change the public discourse. And we see that this has actually worked, that they've been able to slowly penetrate public discourse and even convince mainstream political parties that don't have this sort of historical heritage and historical linkages with, with the Nazis, convince them that they should adopt this language and this discourse about immigrants, about asylum seekers, about foreigners, about all of these issues. And that's the danger that we see that kind of, that language and that rhetoric penetrating our public discourse and altering it and transfiguring it in a way that ultimately is not conducive to generative democratic dialogue. And uh, moving over to uh, the Trump phenomena, <clears throat> if we reflect on, I don't know, say like the Bush years, yeah, it was, there was a clear, it seemed like as bad as it was, there was a clear ideology at play, like a neoconservative ideology with the project for the new American century and, and whatnot. How do we... How do we characterize the ideology of the Trump administration? How do we make sense of it? Because to me, it just seems like I'll say this and then I'll say that and fake news and blah, blah, blah. Like, and it, it just feels like every, just say anything that you can in order to play to your base and keep power. So I'm just wondering how we can kind of try and make sense of where the Trump administration sits ideologically. I think we can get some insight into this from uh, in one of my last articles about the Trump administration. And, and uh, I've written a couple of things about the deep state and this whole kind of debate that's been going on amongst some newspapers and media outlets as to Trump's relationship with the deep state and his apparent war with the deep state. Um, and one of the things that I, I touched upon was this really fascinating a statement that was put out a couple of weeks ago. It was in January, actually. It was at uh, mid-January, I believe, by the Heartland Institute, which is a climate-denying think tank. 
in America, it's quite prominent in that in those kind of circles. And they put this statement out, and these guys are this, they're kind of funded by the same people that funded Trump in the last leg of his presidential campaign. Like, you know, the Koch brothers, heavily invested in fossil fuels, ExxonMobil, you know, obviously, you know, the ex-CEO is now Secretary of State, very powerful. So we can see the kind of alignment in interests. So they put this statement out and it was an astonishing statement because it was basically a declaration of war. And it literally said that this whole global warming thing, all of this and all, you know, all of these progressive ideas and these liberal ideas about clean energy and all the rest of it, these people are at war. They're at war with capitalism and we have to fight. And it was it was kind of like you can see what, what I took away from that was that there has been this response that even though under Obama, things were getting worse, Every, you know, it was inadequate that, you know, the kind the carbon emissions pledges, <coughs> excuse me, just weren't good enough. We were still fracking our way into the future and so on and so forth. But what these guys are saying is that even that, even that was, was too much. Even having a having a going onto the world stage and having pledges to to reduce our carbon emissions and to fight coal is too much. We have to go back. We have to make America great again. And what does that mean? It means we have to remember industrial capitalism is the way. Fossil fuel industries are the way. You know, centralized econ economies, which deregulate everything beyond belief are the way tax breaks for the rich are the way so that so what we're seeing is this kind of like um it's it's almost like the emperor it's like it's like donald trump saying you guys were kind of pussyfooting around you know like here's the emperor wearing his glitzy clothes and you were kind of mingling amongst the people and trying to keep people sweet and giving them some sweets forget that forget the whole sweet thing don't give people sweets don't give people anything. Take off your clothes and tell them how it is that this is a war and we're going to we're going to basically destroy you. And this is how we're going to do it. So that's what we're seeing. We're seeing a radicalization of certain centers of power. We're seeing certain centers in the fossil fuel industry. So if we look at who is inside the Trump administration, we can see this preponderance of Goldman Sachs bankers, fossil fuel industrialists, um, and people who've cut their teeth inside the military industrial complex, who've actually fought inside many of America's most dirty wars in Iraq and Afghanistan and, and South America. So these people are not outside the deep state, but they represent people inside the deep state who've said, wait a minute, deep state 1.0 wasn't working. We need to have deep state 2.0. And it's interesting, I, I interviewed the other day and I've just got a piece out uh, um, called... Um, um, uh, it's uh, well don't worry about what it's called and I interviewed this guy called Mike Lofgren who is a 28-year congressional um, aide who his last job was as a budget analyst for the house and the senate and he was basically a republican and he had security clearances and um, he wrote he came out a couple of years ago and uh, kind of like blew the whistle and all sorts of stuff going on in the republican party and last year he wrote a book about the deep state so I interviewed him and I asked him and he said to me, look, basically what we're seeing is Trump is making, he's trying to build deep state 2.0. So this whole idea that Trump is somehow trying to disrupt the deep state or trying to like, of course, there is a conflict going on, but it's not a conflict between the outsiders and, and, you know, and, 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 and the, and the evil deep state. It's a conflict between different coalitions inside the deep state and one group of coalitions has got together and said, oh, hey, we're white nationalists. We're fossil fuel industrialists. We're a neoliberal kind of deregulationists. And what we've agreed is that we don't need to pander to anybody else. We have to basically focus on the American corporate class, American fossil fuel companies. So, that, so you'll notice that's the context of the ditching of free trade. It's not we don't like TI, uh, you know, the, the, the 
TIPP or whatever because it's it's a uh, you know it's too corporate globalist. It's too transnational corporate globalist, and they're saying, well, let's let's protect the American corporations from foreign corporations. That we don't care if it ends up in a trade war with China. We want China out. We want Europe out. We want America first. That's what it means. And that's why it's also a war against the American workers. That's why they're going to go against all of the wage protections and things like that. That's what it's basically saying. Let's make it paradise for American corporations. No sweatshop America. That's what we're talking about. And maybe in just a succinct way, just for people that don't know, you could just uh, clarify what you mean by the deep state. So sorry about that, the deep state. So this, what's happening, right, is that there has been this um, debate about the deep state. And most of the debate tends to view the deep state, as you probably imagine, as being like the CIA, the military intelligence community, and so on and so forth. But when you speak to people like Mike Lofgren, who actually have worked inside the political apparatus in the United States for decades and kind of see how it works and see how decisions are being made. And what he, and, and this guy, you know, his career spanned, you know, Democrat and Republican administrations. And what he said was the continuity in the policies that woke him up to realizing that something was going on that was beyond the political party decisions it just kept influencing policy and making it kind of very similar and he saw this was happening not just in the war on terror not just in what we were doing in iraq and afghanistan but also in terms of finance and the response to the global banking collapse and he comes up with some really fascinating anecdotes but to to, to sum it up he defines the deep state as being this overarching structure consisting of not just includes the military intelligence community but also uh, wall street and also, not just Wall Street, but also um, other transnational banks and corporations, and also think tanks and other powerful groups. <coughs> and what he says is that these groups form these powerful interlocking coalitions. And the way they work is that they kind of have this, because of their mutual power, because they all have a certain degree of power. Yes, they do have disagreement. Yes, they do have competition. But they tend to agree on certain ideas about the overarching way in which politics and the economy and finance need to be run. And so that's what we see explaining the continuity of policy. And of course, there are differences. And that's where we also we also see there are differences in emphasis. And what's happening is under the Trump administration, what we're seeing is that is that level of continuity is sort of beginning to fracture in the sense that there are now very big fissures opening up within those coalitions, amongst those coalitions, because they're now beginning to disagree over how we deal with this big crisis that we're facing. They disagree in the diagnosis of the crisis. They disagree in what the crisis means, and they disagree in what to do about it. And, they, and, and, so, and now they're beginning to fight amongst themselves in a way that is spilling out into the open and leaving the rest of us in the public very confused. Hmm. Well, in a sense, I think if we made a sequel to the film, we might have a chapter called Peak Confusion. Um, do you think that we're in some sort of informational crisis in some sense? You know, we have so much polarization going on. Like, we look at our Facebook feeds and our Twitter feeds, and we think, oh, everyone else thinks that Trump's <coughs> mental. And then we look and we're like, oh, everyone else thinks Brexit's really stupid. And then clearly this is not the case because loads of people vote for it. On both sides of the argument, there's, there's intense polarization. Um, how do we break out of these bubbles, these kind of social media bubbles and these confirmation bias bubbles? And is there, in a sense, uh, an information war uh, being waged on us? I think there is. I think well, there's, there's a number of issues here. I mean, first of all, the phenomenon that we're experiencing of this kind of informational chaos in a way. I mean, on the one hand, I think all of us can sense that in the last few years or so certainly in 2016 onwards certainly under the age of trump there that there, there's a sense of acceleration in the quantity of information that we're seeing in the gravity of information and in um in in the kind of the complexity of the information there's so many different things happening it's hard to keep up now every day there's some crazy thing happening um so there's, on the one hand, there's this phenomenon of acceleration. On the other hand, there is this phenomenon of polarization that we're seeing. That in terms of the information sensors 
that we have developed technologically to process information. And that includes a number of things. It includes the global media industrial complex, which you might say is the mainstream media. But that also includes with it the, the content platforms, the social media platforms that all of us use, whether it's Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, Snapchat, whatever it is. We have all these different information sensors. And yes, what we're seeing is as we're using these information sensors, we're not generating actionable knowledge. What we're looking, what we're seeing happening is these, we're creating these bubbles of communication, which are very polarized, where we tend to, we have lots of confirmation bias. We tend to only want to find information that we agree with. Um, and this, I mean, and this, this is something that I think we all experience and we all kind of know is happening. Um, and I think there is a systemic component to this. And one of the, um, one of the things that I draw on to try and make sense of it, and if you wanted to check it out, I've got a scientific book, which is just out called Failing States, Collapsing Systems, which tries to establish a systems framework to understand some of these issues. And what I've done is I've drawn on complexity, complex systems theory and evolutionary biology to understand the relationship between information and systems and the way in which systems evolve. So put it really simply, when we take a biological system and it gets to a point where it needs to evolve and there's, a, there's lots of, you know, kind of environmental pressures on that organism to adapt, here is the role of information. In order for that organism to evolve, it has to process the information from the environment in the right way in order to affect an evolutionary adaptation that works. And we see that in the process of, you know, in the issue of DNA, genetic modification, we have to make what, what has to happen in order for that organism to survive is, is that the, 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 the DNA has to process the information from the environment in the right way and translate that into the right sort of biological adaptations. And obviously, we know this happens through random mutations and so on and so forth. But the thrust of it is, <clears throat> if that doesn't happen, the organism dies or the species dies. Now, in relation, when we apply this sort of understanding to humans, the human system, the human, the human civilizational system, it brings us some really interesting insights into what's happening informationally. And I think, I really do think, I do see that the informational crisis that we're seeing happening is actually systematic of this fundamental, deeper global systemic crisis where all of these convergences that we're seeing, climate, energy, food, the economy, and so on and so forth, and conflict, violent conflict, and all these issues are really symptomatic of a system which is reaching a threshold, and it's getting to a point where it has to undergo some sort of phase shift to another system. And it, if it doesn't undergo that phase shift, then there's going to be a breakdown of some kind. We don't need to get dogmatic about what kind of breakdown and what kind of collapse and is it going to be the end of the world or let's not worry about that but the most important thing we see is that when we look at what is happening with information and the acceleration and polarization is that this is actually a symptom of us reaching a point reaching a crisis threshold where we really are on the cusp of a phase shift but we need to make a systemic adaptation or we will experience a systemic regression so one of the ways in which we need to kind of take step forward in order to deal with this is empower ourselves informationally. And that requires us to establish new information architectures to be able to process information in a way which leads to actionable knowledge. And we may not know the outcome of that. We may not know exactly what that looks like, but the first step to do that is to begin to free ourselves from this informational chaos. And one of the ways we can do that is by understanding the way in which we are constantly being bombarded with information in a way which is really means that basically we, there is an information war going on. And I don't mean this in the ridiculous Alex Jones style way. Um, <clears throat> I mean this in the sense that there are multiple agents and institutions and governments and corporations that are at war that are engaged in psychological warfare. And this is not, not, not in the sense of a strange conspiracy, but in the sense that they are actively trying to influence what we do 
They want us to buy their products. They want us to vote in a certain way. They want us to believe certain things. They want us to accept certain ideas and values. And and it's not like it's necessarily this evil Machiavellian conspiracy, although I'm not close to the idea that there is a certain component of that going on at some level. But we can see that from a systemic and structural perspective, it makes perfect sense for various political parties or, or governments or corporations to, to engage in this kind of activity because that what, that's what appears to them to increase their power and to, and to suit their interests. But when we begin to see that this is happening, it's then that we get to, we get to see to the, the extent to which we are living in a sea of information which is constantly trying to manipulate us cognitively and to control us neurophysiologically. And again, I don't mean this in this weird kind of mind control kind of like sense. Again, I'm not even closing off the idea that there aren't elements of that going on, but I don't mean it in that sense. I mean it in the simple sense that every single day, you know, whether it's watching TV, whether, it, whether it's what we do on our phones, whether it's what we, what we eat, what we wear, we are const- we are we are living in a system which is being constructed around this paradigm and value systems and one of the ways i try to get this across is this really fascinating quote from i don't actually have the exact quote in front of me but it's a quote from edward bernays who is going kind of credited with being the creator of modern public relations and he wrote this book called propaganda i think it was in 1958 <clears throat> this guy was a consultant for big American companies, you know, like General Electric, United Fruit Company. He, um, you know, he was, his ideas uh, influenced CIA coups in the CIA coup in Guatemala. He consulted for the American government um, on several programs. So this guy was at the top of it. And he, in one paragraph in this book, he basically says that in order for liberal democracy to function, you have to have the ideas of the masses controlled and he, he uses the language like this and it sounds like you're reading the protocols of the elders of zion that's that's how it sounds he literally says you have these 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 powerful men behind the scenes controlling your their thoughts and beliefs and this is what we need this is how liberal democracy will, actually works now the reason i mentioned that is because it gives us a really interesting insight <clears throat> into the thinking behind public relations discourse as it has evolved over time now <clears throat> i don't know whether there are you know which corporations maybe think in the same way or not but what's happened is that sort of thinking that sort of technique that sort of idea of the relationship between power and people has become more and more sophisticated as new technologies have been created to disseminate and control information and now we see that those types of technologies are being used in many, in very, very sophisticated ways to influence the way that we do things. So when we look, for example, at the scandal that's erupted in the news about Brexit and Trump, and we've heard about this PR firm based in London, a a technology firm called Cambridge Analytica, Steve Bannon, who is Trump's uh, chief strategist in the White House, is on the board of this firm. And we now know that Cambridge Analytica was involved in pouring, there was was lots of money that was poured in from billionaires like Robert Mercer, who backed Trump, in in creating this campaign that would target people and develop profiles of hundreds of millions of people. And they did this in America, they did this in Europe, and they attempted to influence the elections by... uh, so, for example, we heard about Facebook dark posts where they were posting targeted ads at specific people that, you know, if you if you're not targeted, you won't know about this this kind of advert. And it was and they fight. They were fine tuning these adverts based on the way in which people responded to them. Now, we don't know to the extent to which these sort of techniques influence the decisions people made in the elections, because the data is privately held. So we don't actually know. But if there is an investigation, and there may well be a criminal investigation, because this sort of attempt to influence the the, the vote in Britain, for example, arguably is actually illegal. I don't know how it stands in the United States, but there are very clear laws 
in, in Britain about this sort of activity. Now, if there is an investigation, we may uncover the extent to which these influenced our beliefs or, or, the, or the beliefs of people that were voting. And the reason I mention all of this is really to highlight this is one example of the array of actors with differing points of view and different ideologies that are attempting to influence what we do and what we believe and what we eat and what we buy and everything else. And that's the sea of information that we're living in. And we need to now develop ways in which we can train ourselves to be aware of the extent to which that is influencing our behaviors on an everyday basis and develop new ways to share and process information. I'm just going to uh, read out a quote from your recent article and ask you to talk about it. And then after that, I think we'll open it up to the audience for some questions. Uh, in your most re recent article in Medium, you say, quote, uh, there is a war between an old dying paradigm and an emerging new paradigm <coughs> that is rapidly and concurrently disrupting the old paradigm here and now. What do you mean by this? And are you hopeful for the future? So I, in terms and what I mean by that, going back to what I've said in terms of um, this declaration of war that has been made, for example, by certain elements who seem to be very sympathetic to the Trump administration and so on and so forth. In my view, what we're seeing is, is that this, the, the system as, as it stands in its current form, all of its various interlocking structures, their political structures, their economic structures, the cultural structures, the ethical structures, the spiritual structures, the, the, the sense in which these structures view or, or ask us to view human nature and humans, human nature's relationship with the natural environment. All of those things basically are part of this paradigm, which is clearly on its way out. It's kind of disrupting itself. When we look at what's the, the crisis in the oil industry, for example, we can begin to see why ExxonMobil is so desperate. I mean, they're in the red. They're in huge debt. The profitability of the oil industry is hemorrhaging because we've reached this strange point in the oil system where cost of production are extortionate. But the drilling economics of the shale gas revolution means that we have to keep drilling so quickly and so rapidly that it's produced this oil glut on the market. And so demand isn't high enough. And the price of oil is so low that these companies aren't making money. And they're running out of money and they keep getting into more and more debt and they're building up debt. And even as that's happening, discoveries of oil are becoming lower and lower and lower. And at the same time, there is this reality that we're on this trajectory of dangerous climate change, where we're looking at the levels of carbon emissions that we're, we're now at, and we've kind of already hit, we've breached the, what many scientists have described as the danger limit, the 400 parts per million kind of limit, where we're kind of looking at the potential of a two degrees Celsius world, which could easily trigger positive feedbacks, amplifying feedbacks in various ecosystems that lead to further increases in temperature. So we're, we're looking at this danger zone. And all of these things that we're looking at tell us that this old industrial paradigm as it stands is no longer useful. We don't need to have a debate as to whether it was at some point useful or not. The reality is that we can all see that it's not working anymore. Whatever good it has achieved, and arguably there have been some amazing achievements, we wouldn't have the internet, we wouldn't have even the discussion of clean energy if we didn't have uh, industrialization as it stood. So we, you know, we can at least say that well, there are some things that we can use to, to, which, which we can bring into a, a post kind of industrial kind of system, which we can use to benefit people and create and innovate something, something exciting, but it has to be a new paradigm. And that's what we're seeing. We're seeing that this, this, this kind of phenomenon of Brexit and Trump for me can most make sense when we see it as almost like this radicalized response of the old paradigm that just doesn't want to let go and in order to keep going they're doing everything they can they're scapegoating people they're cling, clinging to the old ways and they're saying this is the only way this is the only way we have to do this mm. it's it's everybody else that's a problem it's these groups of people that are wrong those are the problem and they want to muddy the waters and they want they don't want people to understand and think systemically about these things because when you do begin to think systemically 
when we do begin to free our minds from these informational kind of craziness that we're seeing and try to kind of exert a holistic and a systemic approach that's when we begin to open ourselves to that possibility because within the current paradigm everything looks like it's doomed it looks crazy but when we see it from a systemic perspective and we see it from a holistic perspective then we can see that wait a minute this is a we're entering a phase shift and yes things may get very hairy things could get very bad maybe we will end up triggering dangerous climate change god knows where that's going to go but we are at this moment of possibility where where there when where there is a systemic breakdown there is this unprecedented opportunity for, for systemic transformation and when you're when you see it systemically and you open yourself up to that as an individual you begin to see your own possibilities to engage in that process as an a, a small agent but a powerful agent of systemic change and that's why it's really important to have a systemic approach because you stop seeing yourself as this paralyzed individual who is bombarded by power and you begin to realize that actually you are an individual who is fundamentally interconnected with every other unit in the system and that every single perturbation within that system however small has a ramifying impact this is not pseudoscience this is complexity science and when we see that there is this potential for synchronicity we can see that there are these amazing opportunities for dynamic change which we've seen happen in history before with various social movements whether it's the civil rights movement whether it's um you know the the you know the, the gandhi's movement against the british empire or so on and so forth we've seen instances of these catalyzing energizing movements take place so we know it's possible so for me, I think it's very important to see that there is this huge disruptive potential. But the first thing we need to do is recognize our power as agents within that process. It's really important because the old system is all about how we don't have power. It's a liberal democracy. We have to rely on the powers that be to make the decisions. All of the, all, if you look at the way in which our education system is structured, our political systems are structured, the cultural system is structured. It's all about top down. It's all about, and that's why we feel apathetic. That's why we feel this sense of resignation and powerlessness, because that's the old system. It's the old paradigm working its way through our neurophysiology, saying you can't do it. You just have to keep buying, keep keep picking like on Facebook, and that's all you can do. And no, it's not. That's part of the old system. Um, okay, well, I think I'll open it up to the audience. Um, also, I'll just say everything's going to be okay, guys, you know. We're going to be fine. <laughs> One way or another, it'll be all right. So um, maybe I could just uh, open it out to anybody that has any questions for Nafiz or any statements or thoughts at this point. No? Nothing. You've, you've melted everyone's brains. Okay, we've got a gentleman here. Um you I have that effect. I think I melted my own brain. <laughs> <laughs> you um, you mentioned um, previously that uh, we need to protect ourselves or to train ourselves from this information that we're being exposed to. So on social media, you know, on a daily basis. I wonder if you could sort of give some advice about, you know, how how can we train ourselves? What can we do to protect ourselves to be better prepared for this? information that we're exposed to that's a really good question and i just want to start by saying that i'm this is a journey that i am on you know i'm not like going to be like you know guru nafis you know, telling you how to train yourselves blah blah blah. even though so, you're you know, a disembodied head <laughs> yeah. so just just to be clear you know this is a journey that i'm on it's a learning process that i'm on and it's a discovery that i'm making um but it's something that i've i've really kind of like in my in one of my last pieces that Dean quoted, it's something that I really emphasized because it kind of hit me as an insight, this need for us to kind of train ourselves. And it, it emerged from the, a couple of conversations that I was having with colleagues that I'm working with at the moment, when, which we're working on trying to build a new information platform, a new media platform that can actually try and 
do some of the things that I'm talking about, at least or offer a service in terms of an information architecture of some kind, one amongst many, I suppose. Um, so I was talking to these guys and one of the things that hit us was when we look at what, you know, say, so the enemy, look at what the enemy is doing. And I don't mean that in a kind of polarized way, but look at what the existing old paradigm is doing or the agents of that paradigm. They are highly trained. They are highly trained in the sense that they, they sit round tables and they strategize. They, they go through, they go to, they go through leadership training exercises. You know, they have, they have sessions where they try to train themselves physically. They try to train themselves intellectually. They try to train themselves to think in certain ways. Um, this is their lives. This is who they are, right? This is like, this is the corporate managerial world. Um, <clears throat> and they have lots of planning and blah, blah, blah. And when one of the, challenges that we face is as you know is that what we've seen as a result of this is there's been this bifurcation in and this is the weakness of liberal democracy as it stands is that it's all about um just you know it's all about representative democracy as it stands all about kind of just you kind of go you kind of it's all about relegating your power to other people to do the things for you so there's this kind of this dynamic which we've kind of got used to of saying, well, it's it's up to someone else. It's up to the distant agent over there, the institution or the government to do something. I just have to vote for them. I'm not necessarily saying that that is all bad or anything. I'm, what I'm trying to do is just trying to interrogate what that implies for then how we become kind of disempowered because we just stop. We don't have a culture of training or a culture of planning or a culture of strategizing. And that's where we've seen the erosion of the public sphere. So we can, and we've experienced that, that with, there is this erosion of the public sphere. There is this, there, and that's why it's so easy for our democratic discourse to become so ridiculous, so polarized, because we don't have the tools to speak to each other. We've become, so, it's so easy for us to point fingers. It's so easy for us, you know, as soon as we have a disagreement, you know, along left or right to enter these weird polarities where we suddenly can't converse and we have to unfriend people who we've been known for years because we don't agree on Trump or something. And, I, and, and the thing is, is that, and I, I don't say this just as someone saying, oh, that's what's happening to the right. I mean, I say it as someone who I'm part of that as well. I've been victim to this myself and I've been complicit in it myself. <clears throat> and so seeing that, I kind of realized that I need to, I need to kind of train myself to be in, to be engaged on a journey where I can, with others, where we can then begin to kind of build our capacity to be agents within a, a public sphere. So what I mean by that, I guess, is, is there's, there's a number of areas where we can look at. On the one hand, there's this very simple thing where it's like, how can we train ourselves to think systemically or to not just to think system, to see systemically? Because thinking systemically, you know, you kind of read a couple of books about systems theory or, you know, you look at, read a couple of books, you know, read my book or read someone else's book, blah, blah, blah. But I think it's kind of like being able to, to take what you're reading and learning and begin to kind of like open it up to a dialogue with people around you so you can begin to see it, begin to experience it. You can just see the dynamics of the system working. Um, and I think that, and, and, and then it becomes a case of how do you in your life develop methods and architectures and processes to have a different system, even on a small scale of dealing with information. And there's a number of ways of doing that. On the one hand, there's, 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 there's how do we disrupt things like Twitter and Facebook? And how, how do we kind of use existing forums that are there in a way which is generative, to have generative dialogue, to form interest, to form powerful groups of people where we can actually share actionable knowledge? And then it's also a case of how do we develop alternative information sensors which allow us to, which allow us to become independent of those things? How do we develop things which allow us to extract ourselves from from the existing technologies that's kind of technological hegemonies of Google and elsewhere. How can we explore that, become more technologically savvy and use different tools 
with a different dynamic because the existing tools they have a certain dynamic they have they could they've been created with a certain goal and again it's not conspiracy it's just a simple case of well we've created facebook for certain reasons in order to kind of increase revenues for a certain group of people and we're going to do it in a certain way and that's why it has this dynamic so maybe even if we are engaging in those tools but we need to look at can we engage in other tools with a different dynamic which have a different whole different feel about them because the whole programming is different because the whole ethos why it was created is totally different it's a different goal it's a different ethos there is another dimension to this which i think <clears throat> is really important which is what's going on in our minds and this is almost a spiritual thing but it's also it's a very practical thing as well and it's something which i think really does involve liberating our minds from seeing that basically we are constantly operating based on these broken mental models that are created in, in, a, say, in, in a sense or manufactured by simply being part of this system where you have these, these very simplistic Cartesian dualities in the way we think about things, the way we see things. And that requires us, I think, to do a little bit of like soul searching and kind of step back and to say, how is it that our mind is working? What are the, you know, how is it that our the the kind of little voice in our head is constantly the thought process how is that thought process constantly being consumed by the things that we see and that requires us taking that step back and taking that time out and literally and taking a step back and watching how is that voice running how is that thought process running and being able to abstract ourselves from and by doing that we create us we create this ability for ourselves to begin to have a relationship which is not mediated by this technological interference where we begin to say we'll go out to to to, to natural environment and just in, and just have a communion with it have space with it and allow it to speak to us allow it to inform us and i think if we do these things in in different ways it will open it will open us up to various possibilities and i think i guess the third thing that I think is really important and really disruptive is for us to want, you know, while we're doing all of this stuff, and some of it may seem abstract and some of it may, say, may, seem, may, seem, may seem helpful and specific, but the most important thing I think is, is to assess who we are in terms of our skills, our interests, to assess our context in terms of the people around us, the institutions around us, where we're engaged. For example, you know, what, what, what's your job? What's your livelihood? What's your context? What's your family environment? And, and, and then to say, how can I disrupt the old paradigm based on these processes that I've engaged in just now? You know, whether it's, you know, systemic thinking or working, you know, having a dialogue with people around me to kind of be more systemic in the way we think about things, you know, where we kind of trying to teach each other stuff or whether, whether it's like take up some meditation and try to have, have that time out to really kind of engage with myself, whether I'm going out to, you know, the forest, literally, to kind of just have that space outside of the urban environment, to kind of just have that communion with nature. Then there's this very fundamental practical thing, which is like, now I'm understanding the old paradigm. Now I'm kind of becoming a little bit more self-aware. How do I disrupt? <clears throat> in my way and i don't just mean i'm going to go to a couple of talks and like that's disruption no it's not how do i understand that this is a war and i'm engaged you know this is not just it's not that's why i really emphasize this issue of the war this is a war on all life on earth because that's the final picture that we're looking at and it, i'm not saying that they're necessarily going to win but i'm saying that when we understand that this is what this is how they think of it or this is or even if, if not when i don't want to polarize it too much maybe, maybe they don't think of it in that way but this is this is the end result of what of what those structures are doing and then when we get to see that it's not just them we are them because we are part of them we are part of the system that they've created and they cannot exist without our complicity and without our constant everyday behaviors as part of that system. So we need to have a, a disrupt. How can I then be an agent of disruption? And it doesn't mean that we, um, we have to do something fundamentally crazy or something. Um, but it means that we have to recognize that this, there, there is a lot at stake here. 
because it's a war on our whole it's a war on everything that we love and hold dear it's a war on humanity it's a war on all life on earth and that's the end end result where it's going when we realize that that's what what is at stake then we have to have we have to disrupt and disruption doesn't mean what some people think it means which is mean i'm going to go and i'm going to tear down everything i'm going to just go and just i'm going to blow something up or something no that's not disruption that's old paradigm thinking the violence of it you know that's short-sighted I think what you're doing to... is creating more disruption in the, you, you know you're just being creating more things for the system to react to in a regressive way but how can i create something new which will disrupt the old paradigm and actually create that new paradigm and i think realizing that you as an agent sorry have sorry didn't have the power to do that is such an is such an amazing thing to do and it's very powerful because we do we have the power to create that new paradigm in in our own lives now Great, thanks Nafiz. Did that answer your question? <laughs> um, so we're, we've completely run out of time. I'd just like to okay, thank sorry. you very much. No, that was brilliant, Nafiz. And uh, there'll be, um, you know, you can sign up for Nafiz's spiritual training camp on the way out of the, <laughs> out of the, way out of the venue. Uh, I'd just like to thank, thank you all for listening. I'd like to thank Elevate Festival, and uh, in particular, Daniel Elika, uh, for organizing all of these fascinating discussions. Um, you can look back at all the other videos for a lot of practical ways that you can fight this information wars in a way that I've been filming over there. Um, uh, I'd also just like to say that uh, me and Nafiz now have a podcast. It's called The Crisis of Civilization Podcast. You can subscribe to it on iTunes and SoundCloud and all those other places. Every two weeks we'll be having discussions like this, basically. Uh, and, and you can listen in, you can email us, and you can become involved in that conversation. So um, thank you very much. And... Uh, you know, I'll see you. See you next time. Thank you. Thanks, guys. <clears throat>